Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, welcome everyone. This is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guests today are the authors of Humor Seriously, Why Humor is a Secret Weapon in Business. Jennifer Aker is a Stanford professor with a doctorate in both marketing and psychology. And her co-author is Naomi Bagdonis, a Stanford lecturer, strategy and media consultant, and actually, believe it or not, a professionally trained comedian. So we're going to have a great time uh, talking about humor and how it impacts business and how it can, if you will, change everything. I hope you enjoy. Well, listen, it's wonderful for the two of you to be here on my Into the Magic Shop podcast, and I appreciate it. And I certainly know Jennifer, and now I'm beginning to know Naomi. What we're here to talk about, uh, besides ourselves, is uh, your new book, Humor Seriously. And both of you are at the Stanford Business School. Many people think of people at the business school, and I, to be frank with you, I have given a few lectures there. There's not a lot of humor uh, sometimes. Uh, you have a lot of very high-powered people who have a lot of anxiety. And frankly, uh, what I have noticed is they're all worried about being judged in some way. And maybe you can give me some insights about that. Then maybe we can start the story about humor and how it has a really a huge impact on people's mental, physical health, their well-being, and even their longevity. Well, you are right that there isn't typically a lot of humor in the business school, which is probably part of the reason why our course at Stanford gets the same amount of academic credit as financial accounting, because we really need more humor in our lives and in our businesses. And so especially for people who are feeling nervous about failing, and our students certainly feel nervous about failing or about, you know, they think they're there to do a stand-up set, which they're absolutely not. The biggest thing to overcome is to recognize this is not about telling jokes and being funny. It's about fundamentally shifting our mindset and navigating the world in a different way. And that is on the precipice of a smile. So that's all we're doing here. And that, if, you, if you're able to do that, then it will fundamentally change the way you look at the world and the way that the world looks at and interacts with you. Yes, the bar is so low. And it's not just in the business school. <laughs> the bar is so low. It's also in business. You know, there, we have data from Gallup. 1.4 million people in uh, over 166 countries answered this very simple question. Did you smile or laugh yesterday? And the answer is yes, when you're, you know, 14, 16, 18, 20, and all of a sudden around 23, it plummets, plummets. It's the most depressing um, humor cliff you've ever, ever witnessed. And people start to say no, and it doesn't pick up again until people are about 70 or 80, until they retire. So it's a, it's a global pandemic really focused on business and work. You know, it's interesting. You, you have that dichotomy between the two because- on the one hand, you have younger people who, frankly, aren't that much worried about being judged initially. And then you have a group of people who realize 
that they're old enough that they really don't give a shit about <laughs> what people think of them. But it's really true. In some ways, uh, this is very much, I think, about judgment and being authentic and free to express yourself. I want to mention about judgment for a second. You know, we aren't always aware of how other people's perceptions of us are changing when we try humor. And people are often really wrong about this. So what we know is that leaders who are viewed as having a sense of humor, any sense of humor, this is not my leader is funny, it's my boss has a sense of humor, are viewed as 23% higher in status, more confident and more competent. Their employees rate them as more motivating and more admired and their employees report being more engaged at work. And so part of what we are trying to debunk here is the myth that if I use humor at work, there's all this downside. Well, actually, if you're not bringing your sense of humor at work, then you're leaving a tremendous amount of value on the table. Jennifer, <laughs> do you want to take up the slack from that comment? This is one of our favorite studies that the students also really like. On the first day of class, we tell them about this very simple study where research assistants in a lab worked with subjects and there were two conditions. Either the RA was going to do a negotiation task with the student or subject and they were going to negotiate over a piece of art. And the RA said either, this is my last deal for this piece of art, or the RA said, this is my last offer but I'll throw in my pet frog. And the individuals in the second condition received 18% more money in the negotiation. And the people negotiating with that RA said that the task was so much more enjoyable. It diffused tension, et cetera. Again, the bar is so low. The frog line isn't necessarily full of wit, but it was enough to say, suggest that there was a sense of humor, a sense of humanity associated with this, you know, RA or Confederate in the study. What's interesting about that, though, is that in some ways, this is about making connection. And I think, I, I know, Jennifer, you've talked about the power of story. I think in some ways, this is analogous to this because it allows people to connect with your humanity and then feel comfortable versus being tense and anxious. You know, I'm sure you're aware if you walk into a room and a guy's sitting there like this versus with a smile on their face and greets you, it changes everything and it changes people's perceptions. Right. Well, I didn't mean to leave you too speechless. Uh, <laughs> oh, it was so, we just weren't sure who was going to pick up the slack. It's so funny because Naomi and I, you know, we've been working together for six years. So we literally can almost mind read at this point and we know what each other are going to say. Um, so anyway, I'm going to I'm going to take a whack at this and I will bet you this is identical to what Naomi was going to say. All right. First of all, the power of story is you're completely right. There's something about connection that happens when people share a personal story. People feel connected. Um also, you know, stories versus just data alone are much more memorable. There's one research paper that actually was associated with Gordon Bauer. You probably know Gordon um, at some point uh, during your career. And it showed that um, when stories are shared, they're up to 22 times more memorable than just facts alone. What we find is that humor um, has similar properties. When you make someone laugh or when you just laugh with them, it basically shortens the distance between the two people. In one study, subjects uh, were asked to basically laugh together right before a study and then disclose personal information. The individuals in the condition where people did laugh together versus didn't 
disclose 30% more personal information. So it does exactly shrink that distance between two people. And humorous content is much more memorable as well because of that, partly because of that personal connection. You know, you're processing that information more deeply. And in fact, one of our favorite activities in the class is called a levity reframe. So I'll let Naomi um, share that because I think that's what she was thinking. Oh, was I? So, so levity reframe is where we have our students write down what are the most meaningful stories of their lives and, you know, no constraints on them. They don't have to be comedies. They don't have to be dramas. Just what are the most meaningful stories? And then we have them tell those stories through a lens of levity. So how do you tell the story of this really challenging moment in your life and look for ways to not tell jokes about it, but tell that story in a way that feels lighthearted. And when we're able to do that, it can have profound impacts on, on how we view ourselves and how much control we view um, that we have in our lives. Jennifer was mentioning the power of humor to bring people together and especially bring strangers together. One thing that is profound that people don't necessarily think about is that humor not only helps us bond in the moment, but it makes us feel more satisfied our, about our relationships after the fact. So for example, we know from studies that when couples are asked to reminisce about moments of shared laughter versus moments that are happy, after they tell those stories, they later report being 23% more satisfied in their relationships than those who told a story about something that was just a happy time together. And so in a moment when we've never been more physically disconnected um, from our colleagues, from the people that we love, the idea that simply recalling moments of shared laughter will make us feel more satisfied is pretty profound in this moment. It's um, interesting because, again, I talk a lot about compassion, as you know. And in some ways, I think there is a correlation here. I don't know a study per se, but I think about the relationships I've had actually with some people such as the Dalai Lama, who's gone through an immense amount of tragedy, and he has this incredible sense of humor. And the same with uh, Desmond Tutu. It's extraordinary how very powerful leaders who can sort of look at things through a more lighthearted lens and share that are revered almost. That is so fascinating. We've heard this as well. Um, we are unfortunately not yet friends with the Dalai Lama, but maybe that can happen someday, Jim. <laughs> Um, but we've heard this over and over again. Can you share a little bit about how that came to life for you when you got to know him or, or maybe a specific story that you remember? Well, I got to know him through a very interesting circumstance, actually, when I founded the Center at Compassion at Stanford, actually. And uh, this may sound strange, but I had begun these initial research endeavors in this uh, space. And what's interesting, actually, and in some ways it might even be like humor, when I talk to academics about the study of compassion, they looked at me, and this is neuroscientists and psychologists, and basically said, anyone who would study compassion, that is an academic dead end. And it was sort of interesting. Unfortunately, I don't listen to too many people, except my wife, maybe. But uh, I went ahead and uh, actually to motivate these scientists to do the research, I paid them to do the research. And what's interesting is two of them actually changed their entire research direction following some of the studies we did. But one day I was walking through the Stanford campus and this image of the Dalai Lama came into my head. Now, I have to be frank with you, 
I had no particular interest in the Dalai Lama whatsoever. But this image would not go away. And, and in fact, I told my wife about this. And we had recently, um, or I should say, she volunteered me to go to an event with her with the Dalai Lama a few years before. And I refused to go, actually, because I wasn't interested. But um, it ended up, uh, after that vision would not go away, it apparently was telling me I needed to meet him. So I tracked down people who were related to him and fortunately was able to get an audience. It's interesting because uh, he, he will like come over and touch your hair and start laughing. And I, re- <laughs> I, I remember I your was Your hair on- is actually pretty comical, so I get <laughs> Well, if it were only my own. Uh, but uh, I remember I was on stage with him one time and actually it was a group of spiritual and religious leaders all at some convocation a thing called the Festival of Faiths and uh, I was apparently the invited atheist Uh, but uh, he the Dalai Lama of course knows me quite well and each of these spiritual and religious leaders got up and uh, you know they said something profound related to their own religion and then as he was walking up and I'm at the end, he comes over to me and he starts pointing his finger. He goes, why are you here? You're not a believer. And then he starts laughing. He goes ahead and gives his <laughs> talk. But, you know, that is the way. Uh, and there's a lightness uh, about them. And there's a sense that, again, uh, you're not being judged. And I think mm-hmm. that's a very, very important aspect of uh, humor, actually, and, and in some ways, compassion. Actually, before we go further... Uh, maybe you, the two of you can tell me how you ended up uh, researching this topic. Now, obviously, I've read the book, so I know, but it is sort of interesting that you get a convocation of people from uh, significant academic institutions to go do improv. Maybe you can tell me how that all occurred. Yeah, so that was, I think that kicks off the introduction of our book where, you know, 10 of us from Stanford, Harvard, Wharton, um, have all flown in, you know, we're on a stage in Chicago, you think we're going to give a lecture and instead we're performing really bad sketch comedy. And so, you know, this is sort of the idea that, well, why have these people all come together? Because we have this shared belief that humor is incredibly powerful, you know, for our psychology, for our behavior, and might be an, a real competitive advantage in business. So Jennifer and I came to this from very different angles. I personally had comedy and humor was always a deeply ingrained part of my family. Um, And growing up, we had some really um, hard things that we went through as a family, and we just laughed our way through them in a way that felt relentless and actually quite empowering. And then um, when I went into business, I hit this fork in the road where I started leading a total double life, where on, you know, evenings and weekends, I was doing improv comedy, and I was I had so much joy and fulfillment in my life. And by day, I was doing really, really well at my job and was not laughing at all. So this came to a head when a client basically told me that she thought that I was a lonely, sad cat lady who never saw my friends and had a very boring life, where I realized, oh my gosh, I can't go on like this, living this incongruent life. By the way, the name of the cat when her client asked to guess it was cat. That's what that <laughs> Naomi would name. I, well, because it's so fascinating. You ask someone to paint a picture of what they think your life is like. And if they're so far off, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating exercise. So yeah, I did ask her, what do you think the cat's named? And that was not ironic. 
so for me, it came from this place of personal incongruity where I felt I was burning out. I felt like I wasn't going to be able to have a fulfilled life and work. And more importantly, I deeply believe that laughter is a fundamental melody of human conversation. It is something that is so easy to connect people. And it's a melody that we all know the tune to and we all know how to sing along. And so the fact that it would be completely absent from my life at work was a real tragedy. And so that's when I turned to really trying to understand what is the science behind this and partnering um, luckily with Jennifer to um, to do this work together. Just a comment though, it, it's in some ways uh, you were leading an inauthentic life, right? You knew who you were, but you felt compelled to act differently. And again, uh, not to emphasize this too much, but it's all about this perception that you're being judged. And if you show humor, that somehow that is actually negative mm. versus the reality that at least in most cases, uh, perhaps Trump might be the exception, uh, humor can be very powerful to bring people together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love this idea. You're right about being judged. And the thing that's counterintuitive is if you sort of dip your toe in the water, if you if you try something a little humorous, but you're not really confident with it, that's when it can sort of feel you know, a little un uncomfortable or it doesn't quite work. When you really commit, when you just are unapologetically, this is this is something I find funny, or or you're really generous with your laughter in a sort of relentless way, that's when it warms up the room. That's when it brings other people out. And so this principle of commitment, which is so important in improv comedy, it's like, you know, yes and and commit. You have to be fully in it, is I think a principle for humor and comedy, but also more broadly for our lives. Jennifer comes at it from a different angle. Um, so Jennifer, do you want to pick up the slack? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take that baton from you. Pass that thing. We're very good at metaphor too. You know, it's interesting that you talk about judgment, Jim, because thinking about it that way, I think it does kind of contextualizes why I got really interested in this um, this topic more broadly, even before I met Naomi and she had guest lectured in my class and had the students actually laughing on the ground while she was teaching eigenvalue analysis, which was also struck me as, hmm, what's going on here with humor that makes people engaged and remember content more? And the story really starts with my mom. You know, for 40 or so years, she has volunteered at hospice. And so I grew up with my two sisters, you know, hearing stories about what people wish for in their last days of life. Because, you know, as a hospice volunteer, that was her role to help see if she could help um, with those wishes or listen to those regrets. And so we're what you call a really fun family. And so I remember hearing these different stories about what people regret and so much of them, as you know, as you write about, as you've thought about, is about the fallout of what happens when we feel judged or when we're worried about feeling judged. The five regrets that were kind of most commonly mentioned by her and other hospice um, workers that we talked to was boldness, authenticity, presence, joy, and love. So boldness, you know, people wish that they were more bold, that they had been less fearful of, you know, change, of taking risks. And then authenticity is I wish I had the courage to live a life more true to myself, not the life that others expected or had judged for me. Presence, I wish I had appreciated the moment more and simply savored those small little moments. And then joy, I wish I hadn't take myself so seriously that I let myself be more joyful. That again goes back to judgment, right? Like, 
you know, if we're doing serious work, we should be serious. And then last is love. I wish I had the chance to say, I love you one more time. And what's so fascinating about each of these five regrets is that humor is really the secret weapon that mitigates all of them. Um, You know, our research shows that humor moves us through negative emotions more quickly, able to diffuse tension so we could take these bigger, bolder risks. Humor, especially when you understand your own humorous style and the style of others, it allows you to actually be um, much more empowered to be ourselves. And we care less about what people think and more about what we believe. Presence is also interesting. Um, I don't know if that relates to judgment as much, but it certainly does humor because when you're prioritizing humor, you know, you're anchored on meaning, but you're really looking for humor, you're highly present. You have to like listen hard for what people are saying so you can join in on that laughter or, you know, have a callback, which, you know, might refer to a previous line that caused people to laugh. And then joy, you know, when you navigate your life, as Naomi said, on the precipice of a smile, cultivating humor, not going for jokes. It's really quite remarkable where how often and easy it is to find places of joy and humor. And then last is love. And one of our favorite parts of our book is Michael Lewis, who helped write the afterword. It was a conversation. And he ends the afterword saying, you know, where there is humor, love is not far behind. So that was one of the reasons I was so intrigued um, when, you know, I started diving into this this work. But it, it relates a lot, I think, to what you're saying about judgment. You know, it's interesting because essentially you're talking about the existential crisis of your pending death, right? And then that causes you to reflect back and then realize that in some ways you didn't live the life that you wanted. And I think, uh, interestingly, I think you can look at your book as the value proposition of leading an authentic life. It's interesting, and this may sound like a strange metaphor, since you guys like metaphors, but if you meet somebody in their 70s and you go to their house, many of them, have, the furniture's been that way for 20 years. They're not that interested in making it pristine for every visitor. There are dishes laying around. While younger people, they fret about all of this stuff, like, well, the dishes have to be perfect. The carpet has to be clean. Oh, my gosh, there's a stain on the, on the sofa. We can't have people over tonight. And at the end of the day, of course, all of that is completely meaningless. And until somebody embodies that reality, they're focused on the wrong things. Uh, actually, there was an interesting article that I'm sure you guys don't look at Facebook, but uh, I do sometimes. But there was an interesting article that Irma Bombeck wrote, which actually went over all of this. As an example, she said, you know, I regretted when friends came over, I told the children that uh, to go in their room or and, and to be quiet. Or she went through this whole exercise of just living a life, but she kept putting restrictions on things like, well, the house had to be perfect before people came over and all of these things. And, you know, that was her uh, list of regrets that she wasn't able to let go. And I think in some ways it correlates when you're talking about the humor cliff. Younger people are interested in living their life. They're not interested in necessarily what others think per se. Now, certainly there are, since we have, what, over 70% of high school students want to be influencers. But uh, before that, you know, they're just happy and live their lives. Uh, And I think the same thing as you get older, 
you're really just interested in, in living your life and being uh, the best you can be, hopefully. But I think still uh, there are a number of people who this is really hard for. And I think in some ways you're giving them permission by the nature of your book. Yeah, I wanted to recap one thing that you said that was so profound. Well, well I have to stop that. I, I really like that word. I just uh, It's not often I get called profound, so I appreciate that. <laughs> You are welcome. But the the most profound, there was many profound things that you've said already, Jim, but one of them was the value proposition of this book is to lead an authentic, meaningful life. So guys, if you don't want to have an authentic or meaningful life, definitely don't buy this book. Yeah, not for you. That's interesting at all. You know, moderately interesting. We think you should do it. Also, you will live longer. A longer life too. Yeah, this was actually a Norwegian study. It was a 15-year longitudinal study in Norway that found people who self-report having a sense of humor in their lives are 30% more resistant to when severe disease strikes, and they live on average eight years longer. So not so bad. Well, again, what we're talking about here are mechanisms to create personal connection. And we talked about stories, we talked about humor. And when you look at compassion, uh, interestingly enough, which is the recognition of another suffering with a desire to alleviate that suffering, all of these things trigger, I think, mechanisms in your brain that actually decrease engagement of your sympathetic nervous system, which is, of course, your flight and fight uh, freeze mechanism. And pushes you towards your parasympathetic nervous system or your rest and digest system. And, you know, that's the place where your physiology works its best. And I think humor really pushes you toward that. And I think certainly that is why people live longer. And, uh, and the other thing is, uh, I think we all know that if you're happier and you have meaning, you live longer. And none of this should be a uh, surprise one of the things actually I have a question about, though, is, again, thinking about some of the high-powered students you have, and I'll tell you from my own personal experience, how, how <laughs> there is a neurosurgeon who has, I, I am self-diagnosing, or I am diagnosing him, although uh, you could argue about that, but he probably falls in the Asperger range or autism spectrum disorder, right? And he has a very difficult time reading pe people's emotional states and connecting. And I, I, I very much feel for him. But the point of what I'm trying to say is, though, he actually started writing down on cards how to connect with somebody. And it was sort of interesting because in some ways it made him humorous because the engagement was so stilted, but it still made people laugh and connect with him, which I thought was uh, actually quite interesting. Do you know some examples of what was on the cards? Uh, actually, uh, there were things like, uh, look into the patient's eyes, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, smile, mm -hmm. tell a personal story, uh, yeah. and these types of things. So we work with a, a number of CEOs and I have one who keeps a post-it right next to the, um, the camera on her computer that says, hi, how was your weekend? Because she's very hard driving. She likes to get down to business and, to, and it's a reminder to, make a personal connection, take a moment to have empathy with the other person before diving in. Jim, you talked about how 
what humor activates in our brains, what laughter activates in our brains, and how it can actually suppress our fight or flight response and activate greater resilience. And this is part of what's so important about this research is it's particularly important in times that are hard. And I, I'll share a, a quick personal story here. Growing up, there were a couple of years where my father was really sick. And uh, and during that time, I was, uh, I was seven or so at the time. And um, he was so sick that he was in a chair. He had an IV pole, you know, at home next to him, and he wasn't really able to walk around the house. So um, Christmas came around the corner, and we always used to keep our tree downstairs. You know, we had this whole area and these elaborate Christmas decorations. Well, this year we just, you know, we decided we weren't going to have a tree because if Dad can't come downstairs, then there's no use in having the tree down there, and it's okay. We have other things to worry about, right? We're we're just not going to have a tree this year. So my sister and I go to bed and we wake up. My sister was seven, or I was seven, my sister was nine. We wake up on Christmas morning and we come out to the living room to find that my parents had decorated my dad's IV pole like a Christmas tree. <laughs> so there were lights strung about it and there was tinsel and my dad was wearing the tree skirt around his waist <laughs> and there were presents that were all piled around the IV pole. And we all just, like, my, we were like, buckled on our knees laughing and crying but like you know joyfully i mean it was this incredible moment of resilience and of activating neurologically all of the things that are actually going to help us get through this hard thing together and so i think that's part of why this work feels really important now more so than ever because it's in those moments that are really hard and dark and unfair and with deep suffering that humor and laughter can be most powerful. Yeah, you know, I think when you talk about these situations where there is suffering, I would argue that in some ways, humor is a form of compassion. Yeah, I totally agree. This, you know, idea of being able to, especially if you understand like the other person's humor style, we found that to be a bizarrely wonderful way to unlock compassion. Um, so, We'll give you like a little short quiz and then um, tell you what we do with a way of like basically cultivating compassion. So first, most people think that you're either funny or you're not, right? But that's untrue. First of all, we all have a sense of humor and it's not about being funny anyways. Second of all, what Naomi and I found over the years is that there's these four different humor styles. So we've run countless experiments and surveys like literally countless, I think millions of data points at this point, collected to identify these four styles. One is a stand-up. Okay, the stand-up is your classically, you know, funny person. You can go in front of any crowd. You might be more extroverted. You, um, you know, you might tease someone to ruffle feathers, but it's often a sign of, you know, you like the person, you feel comfortable with that person. Then there's the sniper and they are edgy and dry and witty. They often use humor just to make a point, not necessarily to uplift or take down. Then there's the magnet. They're charismatic and also extroverted, but their humor is very inclusive, more potentially compassionate, brings people together. And then there's the sweetheart. They would never take a risk. They wouldn't hurt feelings. Their humor tends to be more earnest and honest, a little bit more quiet. And so what we find is that when people start to understand their own humor style and then the style of members on their team and their company or even in their family, they become much more compassionate because they start to understand like, when you know, when you sniped at me, 
you know, I thought you were being, you know, a jerk and then you, you know, separate and it's hard to feel compassion in that context. But once you find out that, oh no, you know, someone's style is a sniper style and often teasing is actually a form of endearment or intimacy, you start to be much more compassionate, whether that be in the family, at home, or um, in business at work. And certainly that's not surprising because I think sometimes people with humor, they don't understand uh, what you just described, and then they take things personally. And then, uh, of course, then it can be hurtful and actually do the opposite of what we know humor has the potential to do. Yeah. So on the topic of risk, we talk about, we have actually a whole chapter that's essentially focused on what to do when you fail um, and and the risks, the dark side of humor. And this is another one where compassion comes to play because it's really easy when you uh, deliver a joke or you say something funny and it fails, it's really easy to say, oh, well, it's that it's that person's problem. They didn't get the joke or they're just too sensitive. And the reality is humor is so contextual. We all bring a world of, of our experiences, of our pain points, of our sensitivities, of our background. And so when you deliver humor and it doesn't work, we tell our students, lean into that moment and really try and understand what went wrong. We have a framework in our book, Truth, Pain, and Distance, that these are sort of three elements that you can look at to understand why did your humor go wrong. And this is particularly important for people as they rise in status because we know that humor and status or laughter and status are very intertwined, that people laugh not because a joke is funny all the time, but also because the other person is high status. And so we lose our calibration as we get you know, more senior, which is part of why it's so important when, in these instances when we fail to really lean in, to understand what we did wrong, and to have greater empathy and compassion so that we can you know, wield it more powerfully and with greater empathy going forward. Well, that reminds me of a story of my own where uh, I thought I was being funny. Actually, I was at a conference with a woman who I knew, but I thought my joke was going to be very funny or I, that it just came spontaneously, of course. But looking at her face after I said it, I mean, you just take this thing where she was sort of smiling, we were enacted, and she just looked at me like I had just cut her heart out. And I felt, I mean, I was so pained by that. Uh, and that obviously was the wrong joke to tell. But I felt compelled to apologize and to try to put it into some context and sort of acknowledge that I messed up. And she was actually quite gentle with me afterwards. But you're right. I I mean, uh, none of us are perfect. And when we do mess up like that, sometimes, and I think you noted this, you know, somebody say, well, I don't really care. They don't get my joke. Um, But the fact of the matter is, at least in my own mind, jokes should be meant to be shared and make the other person feel engaged and happy and not hurtful in any way. Certainly, I would never want to do that, uh, but sometimes we do it uh, accidentally. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting to know like what jokes you know you, you can't tell, right? So um, we were lucky enough to have Seth Meyers in our class, and he um, added to his show relatively recently a simple but profound segment called Jokes Seth Can't Tell. And so the segment starts with... Um, Seth Meyers between these two brilliant writers, Amber Ruffin and Jenny Hegel, and they kick it off like this. Amber says, 
I'm black. Jenny says, I'm gay. And then back to Amber who says, and we're both women. And finally Seth adds, and I'm not. <laughs> and then Amber and Jenny continue to de deliver punchlines that, as Seth puts it, jokes that due to me being a straight white male would be difficult for me to deliver. So it's interesting. Maybe, um, you know, sometimes humor fails because you weren't the one to be making the joke in the first place or, but it was funny. Other things that we talk about in the class are like, how do you read the room? You know, what's the, what's the mood? And to your point, how will it make people feel? We talk about not punching down, making fun of someone lower in the ranks because of a higher position of power and minding your medium that things land differently in, you know, in person versus text. And then even those humor styles that we mentioned, you know, when you're a sniper or a stand-up, you might often like, again, tease and, and that oftentimes can, you know, basically offend or offset. Whereas magnets and sweethearts, they often over-index on self-deprecating humor. And when you don't have status, that self-deprecating humor can often perpetuate um, lower levels of status. So you have to take that with a grain of salt. So there's all of these contexts, but what's fascinating is really drawing on these secrets of comedians so that you can figure out both A, how to you know, bring humor alive in very concrete ways, and then also mitigate these risks. Yeah. And it's a great point. You know, Jim, to your point, um, you said a joke, you, you had no idea it would fail. And it feels like you're having to learn from scratch. Okay, well, how exactly did I fail? And in fact, there are really these predictable ways that people tend to fail, as Jennifer said, right? You punch down, or you use sarcasm in a um, in a medium where it's not appropriate, or you you tell a, a joke that's in the category of jokes I can't tell. So part of this is understanding what is the structure to humor, not only in how we create it, but also in how we as humans interpret it and therefore can take offense. No, I think that's, that's right. Now, one of the things you talked about was acceptance. And maybe you can expound on that. Uh, and you know what I'm talking about? Oh, accepting offers. Yes, yes. Is that what you mean? Yes. So, um, so this is the basic rule of improv, which is this concept of yes and. And in improv, it basically means whatever offer your partner makes, whether it's explicit or implied, you agree with that premise and you build on that premise. And so this establishes trust between scene partners. It establishes a culture where people feel safe. And so this yes and mentality is really important in building a culture where people feel safe having little bids of humor. So this is a, a small tangent, but you know John Gottman's work about around bids, right? These small emotional offers that we make to other people. It's really easy to watch them go by. It's really easy to turn away from them and say, oh no, I'm not interested in that. And similarly, we find with humor that people are making these little bids all the time, whether it's, you know, we join a video conference together and I'm smiling and you're not, and I realize you're not taking my bid, so I, I get serious again. Or, um, or I have a lighthearted sign-off in an email, you know, yours with levity and Lysol, and you reply with absolutely nothing humorous either. Um, so we see a similar orientation to humorous offers, you know, these little uh, offers to play, as we do to these emotional bids in, um, in Gottman's work. So uh, yeah, so the principle is yes and, and it's the idea that you accept on and build upon what anyone offers. Jennifer? <laughs> Any well, I was just going to say that um, this idea of like 
basically building on you know, this acceptance has another really interesting implication. Acceptance uh, in another vein simply means like just, you know, accepting, like you're not trying to be funny, you're just trying to observe. So a lot of the comedians that we work with talk about this, you know, truth and misdirection type of formula. So kind of as you sort of settle into this mindset, um, what we have our students do is First, make sure they know that there's an acceptance about not being funny. Humor is not about inventing this perfect one-liner from thin air, but just noticing what's true in your life. So we have them like just write down five observations from the day. It's like simple things like how excited your dog is at dinner time, or how you take a walk around the block every afternoon to break up the day, or how you actually took a work call today in your underwear. You know, very simple things. Not necessarily Hey, don't get too close to home here because- uh, That's right. Well, (laughs) Naomi and I are not going to actually stand up. You notice we are sitting down as well. That's the power of Zoom. Yoga pants are my now norm and pajamas is more likely. Um, And then what you do is you you basically, all you do is you just um, use these like little tricks. For example, the rule of three is that is just like create a simple list where the last- item is unexpected. Like I miss so many things about office life, going for spontaneous coffee chats, getting supportive eye contact from colleagues and wearing pants. You know, so you're, you're basically taking the, the mildly funny thing and putting it at the end, which is disproportionately funnier than having it as one or two or exaggeration. Like for example, like the most thrilling part of my day is when I get dressed to the nines, leave my house and circle the block just to feel something. So what you're doing is you're just taking these like little small observations and then applying like a rule of three or exaggeration. And what we find is that this is virtually risk-free. It's certainly easy and people become much more present and accepting of finding humor versus being funny. You know, going back to what you said, Naomi, uh, earlier about these bits, it's it's interesting because one aspect of it, of course, demands that you be authentic. You're putting this out there. And then the other side has to do uh, fundamentally with trust. You trust that person. And this is actually, uh, in some ways, the definition of connection, right? And that is what's so powerful. And whether that connection is putting your position or yourself in the position of another or sort of helping someone or being of service Again, I think the neuropathways are very similar, if not overlapping, in terms of their physiologic effect. And there's certainly a neurologic effect, but what people don't appreciate and what actually is associated uh, with longevity, I believe, is that, again, the shift to your parasympathetic nervous system has profound consequences. Uh, Your cardiac functions improve. Your immune system's boosted. Actually, and I'm making this assumption, I'm not sure if the science is completely there, but I do believe that this is correlated uh, with the physiologic effects of compassion. And in fact, many disease states have at the basis uh, the production of uh, inflammatory proteins and also the release of, of cortisol, which on a chronic basis is uh, highly deleterious to your health. And so we see people who are extraordinarily serious. And I've talked uh, to enough uh, executives who they believe because they're afraid that if they act a certain way or don't let up, that they're going to be taken advantage of or uh, they're not going to perform in regard to their company. 
versus uh, this other aspect, which, as you've already pointed out, uh, is extraordinarily powerful. Uh, because when you make jokes or have humor, it calms everyone down. When people are calmed down, they become more creative and they become more productive because they actually have access to their executive control areas, which give them resources in terms of memory or prior experiences and make a much more discerning opinion versus if you're afraid. And that results in you really limiting your options, I think. Yes, absolutely. Hiroki Asai was a guest in our class and he led the creative marketing group in Apple alongside Steve Jobs. And his belief, he says, fear is the greatest killer of creativity and humor is the most powerful insulator that I've seen against fear. And so that is something that we're doing here too, right? We're insulating ourselves. We're allowing ourselves to access our higher order cognitive functioning through having humor and keeping ourselves healthy in that way. And Hiroki would go to great lengths to do this. I mean, every all hands that he had with his organization, his organization was about 2000 people. And uh, every quarter he would get them together for an all hands. And he was set that there would be one moment in every all hands meeting where all 2000 people were laughing together which by the way, laughter has high social contagion, so it shouldn't be that hard um, to cross that threshold. But he would do things like one time he found that a, a junior designer sang in a gospel choir on the weekends. And uh, so, you know, no one really knew this. She was pretty quiet. And so Hiroki, you know, went up to her and said, hey, listen, I, I want to I want to bring you into a really special project, you know, so they planned this secret thing. And on the day of the all hands, Hiroki's up on stage and he says, you know, by the way, I want to bring up Anna, you know, really senior designer to talk about something she's doing. Well, all 2000 people are thinking, why is, you know, this guy bringing up one of the most junior people in our group? So Anna gets up on stage, she grabs the microphone to talk about it. And then the curtains come back behind her and there's a gospel choir flash mob that, you know, appears from behind and she starts <laughs> singing this ridiculous song and people come out from the audience to sing this ridiculous song. And it's just that, you know, this um, moment of allowing everyone in the room to laugh together, to diffuse tension, to set the tone that we're here to accomplish really serious things. And the way to do that is to not take ourselves too seriously. Well, I, I think it also allows for, again, authenticity. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you as you were about to say something, Jennifer. No, I was just going to add on, you know, cultivating humor is not about being funny yourself. It's also finding people in your community, your teams, your hospitals, your family, and then uplifting them. So Naomi's example is so is so wonderful because it's really, it is about authenticity, but it's not necessarily always about you, right? It's about how you find it in others. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I talk about uh, oftentimes is that if you look a couple hundred years ago, people lived, you know, in villages all together. They grew up there. They passed away there. They lived in these intergenerational or multi-generational uh, family units. And from the time you're born till the time you die, you haven't gone very far. But the interesting thing is people accept you and then they accept you for your good and your bad. And in modern society, as you know, uh, you know, people aren't next to their parents or oftentimes their siblings. And oftentimes they're working in environments where they're not even sure who their friends are. 
And what happens is they put up a projection of how they want to be seen by people. And uh, unfortunately, it's a projection of, well, I'm a professor of this, I've accomplished this, I went to this school, et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately, instead of making people close, it separates people. And I think that through humor, it allows people to take down that projection. And because carrying that projection for many people, it's a heavy load and it's hard. In some ways, this is analogous. People ask me frequently, well, what's it like to be in the presence of the Dalai Lama? And I say it's joyous. But the reason it's joyous is because you don't have to have a projection at all because he universally loves you unconditionally, non-judgmentally. And I think that's a very, very powerful thing. And I think humor is the gateway to that. Now, in some ways, uh, maybe it's even opposite. I, as you do, give a lot of talks, but oftentimes, and I think you know, since you mentioned my book, you know, there's some very powerful aspects of that that make some people cry. And sometimes I tell these stories on stage, I'll start uh, shedding a tear or my voice will crack. But the extraordinary thing about that is as soon as that happens, everyone starts crying. Mm. because you've given them permission. And I think humor uh, gives people permission. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> no, I really it's couldn't. It's true. The laughter, the shared contagion of laughter is, is somewhat akin to the shared contagion of you know, sadness as well. We actually wanted to give you a gift. So, Jim, I know we're coming down to the end of our time together. Oh, no, we're going on for hours, hours. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, I want to hear all the, the stories, the tears, the the laugh, the belly laughs. Um, what is your favorite charity, Jim? Uh, probably Seek Care, the run that I <laughs> one that I run. <laughs> Okay, well, that's good. But but uh, I can't be selfish like that. So uh, I actually support Big Brothers and Big Sisters, uh, actually. Okay, great. So um, we would like to donate $1,000 to your organization, as well as $1,000 of books to the Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And they will receive both $2,000 worth of books to both organizations. We'll follow this up with um, and ask for your ad- favorite address for these two favorite charities. But we just so admire your work. And we just think that the impact that you've had globally has been enormously positive. It's just such an honor to know you and be your friend and for you to be able to, you know, profoundly note that the value proposition of the book is indeed to have an authentic, meaningful life. So we're hoping that every one of those two nonprofit organizations will be able to enjoy that increased authenticity and meaning in life as well, and hopefully a little bit more humor, seriously. Oh, wow. Well, thank you so much. That's incredibly uh, generous of you, and it's uh, much appreciated. I think all of us are fortunate to engage in activities that positively impact people's lives. And what people forget sometimes, whether it's through humor, whether it's through compassion, every person has the ability to positively affect someone's life every day. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Thank you.